welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another in the weekly series I've been doing, just talking about what people have been watching, which is endlessly fascinating to me. Uh, and this week, mm -hmm. especially uh, fascinating uh, because I'm very pleased to have the guest I have this week. I think it's been almost a year since we've, we've talked on the podcast, uh, much less in-person, real, so-called real life. <laughs> Uh, my guest today is Manola Dargis of the New York Times. Uh, welcome, Manola. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi. I, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to uh, rejoin you on the podcast. I had a good time last time we did this. Um, it was in Sundance. We were in a hotel lobby, um, and uh, it was before everything really changed. So it's kind of it's interesting talking to you again. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that in the course of a year you know the most ordinary scenario in in like the life of you know being a critic or journalist seems almost you know impossible being in a crowded room <laughs> <laughs> yes it's just not mm -hmm. exactly happening as much now no and it's really interesting to think back about that time and that specific festival because um i when i came home i got very very sick and at the time i was absolutely i was so annoyed because i'd had the flu shot and i was like god damn sundance i always get sick and but i was so sick and then later I, people kept asking me if i thought i'd gotten uh the virus and i was like i have no idea and i, I never managed to get tests you know to get tested to see if i had the antibodies because i basically didn't leave my home um <laughs> so but it's just weird it's just uh you know it's very strange to think about yeah anyway hi nick <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess it's also been a bit of a a different year you're on a book leave now so you're not you're not mm -hmm. having the same kind of relentless rhythm of reviewing things uh on on a weekly basis or what you know since last really last march the relentless uh kind of despair of trying to stream different things from different companies and having to navigate their each each company's own specific platform and just like being reduced to tears again and again, you know, as I tried to watch things and wondering why my my name was like stamped across the image so you could barely see what was actually <laughs> happening and thinking about right. all this did was all this you know what my big takeaway of my watching since last year is uh, how much I despise streaming and how much I, I miss going to the movies, going out to the movies. So. Yeah. Now there's different preview streaming arrangements that different companies have, and they, they always have these weird names too. I think I just used one that was called the fifth kind. I, I don't even. <laughs> Why? <laughs> a close encounters reference. I don't even understand. But it doesn't give me a lot of confidence, you know, like I can just imagine like 70 years in the future, they're going to be like competing proprietary oxygen systems or something when we're, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, you know, uh, as we were talking about uh, before you turned record, record on, you know, I, I don't hate streaming, uh, you know, or television or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to have movies uh, that I can watch at home. It's just when I want to see a new movie, I mean, I actually want to see all movies on the big screen, but I'm very, you know, I, I grew up watching TV. So it's just, I didn't think that I'd spend a year just doing nothing but watching television one way or another. Yeah. 
And I think you said that you've you've actually been watching a little more television, just television, television. That, mm-hmm. How has that been? Uh, and I mean, wh- and where do you think that impulse comes from? Well, part of it's just a, a problem about sleep. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, problems with insomnia, as does my husband. And insomnia is, as a friend once said, it couples things. So if one of you is having problems and the other one of you is having problems. So trying to make it through the, the past year um, with the final year of the Trump administration uh, and with the pandemic, uh, was, it was very, very hard on our sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, one yeah. thing uh, is that we were we were just we are both early risers, and I've always been an early riser. I, I kind of think I never got off East Coast time when I moved west. Um, <laughs> so I will routinely, uh, when I'm on deadline, get up at five, and it's actually my favorite time of the day to to write is really really early. It just I just feel very clear, and there are no distractions or interruptions, and it's just very very nice. But even uh, we were just getting up all the time, really, really early. Um, and, uh, you know, the earlier we were getting up, the the earlier we were falling asleep. And so some of this was just born out of a kind of pragmatic kind of compromise um, because what, what I found was, A, we really wanted to watch something at night, my husband and I, partly so that we weren't thinking about all the terrible news. We just, you know, and I'm used to watching movies. You know, I watch a lot of movies, even when I'm not reviewing. I, I watch I watch at least one movie a day, you know, um, not even intentionally. It's just I want to. And I, I found, though, if we watch movies at night, both of us were falling asleep. And so that wasn't working. So I just thought, well, let's just watch something shorter, you know, if it can't be like some 1930s movie that's, you know, 65 minutes long, what else do we have? So we just started, we started what it, it kind of was a little easier on us because we were both like, you know, popping awake at five or four thirty or whatever. And like, it just watching a movie after my husband came home just did not make any sense. So we just did a bunch of different things. I would say that, uh, we were, we watched like everybody else. Uh, and you know, our friend, Amy Taubin is actually uh, writing about this right now. We watched the bureau, the, the French series, which, uh, we loved, and it had the kind of engrossing drama that just was just, I felt like for that hour or so, I was not thinking about the news, you know, and that was very beneficial. Right. And then uh, Ted Lasso, which I, which made me a little, you know, it, it was a, it was nice to watch something that did not reinforce my misanthropic tendencies, uh, you know, something that was actually <laughs> heartfelt and optimistic about the human condition. And that's not you know, I'm much more pessimistic. So it was really nice. And that was really, that's a really short, you know, every episode is quite short. So that was very perfect for people who have sleep issues. Um, and then uh, I was just casting about trying to find something else. And then we, I just, you know, actually not, I did decide, but we both decided uh, that we would rewatch The Wire Ooh. Uh, because it, I, we hadn't, we hadn't watched it since it first aired. And so that was really pleasurable. And it was also really fun to see like, oh, Michael B. Jordan, there he is, baby, baby Michael B. Jordan, because he's a teenager <laughs> right. in the show. And I, I have to say one of the things that was really interesting, and I, at that point I was on leave, so I, I couldn't pitch this as an idea for someone else to write, but I was really, uh, we were watching it and in the midst of it, there was a great discussion about the use of the N-word and mm. 
I just was thinking a lot about that vis-a-vis this show because I, it's just, it's said so often that when you first started rewatching it, it was like, it, it was a little like, I was like, Oh, Oh yes. Okay. There's that word. It would, and it was really interesting. And I was just thinking about, would it be possible to write that show the way it was written, you know, now? And I'm not sure, but it was interesting. And I would like to know what David Simon thinks and some of the other writers that were, um, responsible for writing the scripts. Uh, so that was interesting. And we've been casting about now for something else, another show. Um, I watch a lot of trashy television, um, trashy and just, you know, non-quality television, <laughs> the kind of TV that doesn't get it, the kind of TV that does not necessarily get big feature, uh, reviews, you know, in the New York times. Um, so, uh, <laughs> balanced diet right you can't, you can't all yeah, do the, exactly you know, the, the high high nutrient exactly. stuff <laughs> yeah well and it's also um i watch television the way i watch movies you know which is basically i'll watch anything you know pretty much anything mm-hmm. uh with few exceptions yeah. and but i these are shows that i often will um you and i've talked about this briefly just you know off mic there's something what my friend Margie calls uh, laundry folders, um, which are oh, right. shows that you can watch as you're folding the laundry. And so there's, you know, I'm always looking for something that I can kind of basically, because so many, so much television to me is just basic radio drama, you know, mm-hmm. and certainly television is completely parasitic or almost entirely parasitic up, uh, um, on film in terms of its kind of narrative techniques, you know, on um, visual techniques, you know, how, how it creates narrative, but, you know, it grows out of that and out of theater, but it's so much of it is radio. You realize that, you know, if I wear a headset and walk around the house and I'm putting things away and, you know, like tidying up or putting the, putting away the folded clothes. And for the most part, I don't need to look at the, the, the screen. Right. It's an interesting exercise when you're doing that because you're like, oh yeah, this is a radio drama, <laughs> you know. And then you right. go back and it's like one one huge close up of a head after another. So you, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so like the last thing, my last laundry folder was um, Animal Kingdom, which is based on the Australian movie of the same title that came out a couple oh. years ago. Um, did you like that? I haven't seen that. Did I like the movie or did I like the show? The show. I watched it, uh, which is, you know, I don't know. It was there and I watched it and, and it's, it's, it was so incredibly uh, ridiculous. Uh, it was basically a show that they said, okay, we're going to base it on this movie, but it's a two hour movie and we have to spin a multi uh, season show out of this. And then, you know, they said, okay, everyone watch Point Break. <laughs> You know the original Catherine Bigelow movie, and then we'll uh-huh. throw in some other stuff. It's it is such a, a a hash of of Southern California cliches, like you know really buff guys who do think like motocross and 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 surf. They're all surfers. I mean, I just was, and then when they're not doing that, they're robbing people, <laughs> <You know? laughs> or their their mother, who's played by Ellen Barkin, is just saying. Yeah, baby, have some lasagna. You know, I mean, it's just, it was just so <laughs> not good. And yet I kept watching it because as one does, you know, um, and it, it served its function, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what, one thing that just came to mind when you were, uh, I mean, just the idea of there being kind of radio dramas, I, 
it, it made me wonder if there is a little bit something different about on-demand TV versus, you know, once upon a time when you mm-hmm. just switch on, mm-hmm. switch on the TV and whatever was on, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, where right. it is like really like a radio. But now, I mean, it's not a lot of effort, but you, you do have to click on something and then you, you kind of start it. And I kind of wonder mm-hmm. if that feels a little different than just there's this thing you can just turn on any given time and, and whatever's on is just on. It's I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about has it changed like, for instance, shows on Netflix, which presumably, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I'm, you know, I might be getting this all wrong. Shows, for instance, that are made, that have been actually financed, because they do finance some shows uh, for Netflix, that they don't necessarily have the same kind of um, narrative rhythms as shows that were made, for instance, for network television, which is, you know, where there are going to be commercials. And so you're going to have, there's a specific television phrase and I, I'm sorry I don't remember what it is and it's kind of like how um, a scene is kind of um, rounded out almost for like a mini cliffhanger because you know when you're going to cut to a television and there's a there's a specific phrase for that and when you're watching a show that was made specifically for network and then you're watching it on streaming it's really interesting because you'll just feel like a certain kind of closure to a scene and then you cut, but instead of to a commercial, of course, you're cutting to the next scene. So it's just, hmm. but you're very aware of these, this kind of rounding down, you know, where the kind of, it's like almost part of the curtain is coming down, but not quite because it's going to be a commercial. Um, and, and how that's different from like HBO shows, again, which were made speci- specifically for HBO and, you know, under the whole rubric of like quality television, um, it's not TV, it's HBO and it, it doesn't necessarily have those same rhythms, I don't think. I mean, it's interesting when you're watching it to see how that works. And I think, you know, again, I'm sure that TV writers, like, I don't know if they bring some of those same ideas and habits, you know, narrative habits that they were accustomed to in network if they're bringing it to the streaming services where there's not, where there's not going to be commercial interruptions. And I don't know in certain countries if, commercials are added. I, I don't know. I mean, I know if you pay for like Hulu, you're going to like, I don't know, there'll be commercials, but not commercials inserted. So it's, if I were more interested in television, I would pursue this as a line of, uh, of uh, inquiry, <laughs> but I am not that. I mean, I am interested in TV. I'm interested in television, of course, in terms of like its relationship to movies, but it's not my like primary focus. Obviously I'm, I'm just watching crap <laughs> and sometimes great stuff. Yeah. It's also some television, it's, it just seems that it's designed to be a little self-effacing. I mean, just in terms of the style or they really signal the stylistic things they want you to notice. Uh, so it'll be like these, you know, two or three things about the show that are it's, it's signature or something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes find myself not always able to have that the kind of critical attention that I have for a movie, you know, even a movie that I'm watching somewhat casually. Well, I mean, I would say so much of the television that I watch is melodrama, you know, whether or not it's mm. under the kind of, you know, whether it's being categorized as a crime series or it's whatever, you know, it, it all kind of ends up being melodramatic in a way. Uh, and it's very much about relationships, you know, among different characters, you know, and, and, 
frankly, a lot of it's soap opera, you know? Um, and I don't mean that's not a, that's not a disparaging term. And I'm not using that. I'm using that as a purely descriptive term where it's like, you know, the days and nights of this particular crime family. And so for animal kingdom is a perfect example because it's a family melodrama. Um, and it's fundamentally a soap and people are have you know, mm. people are fighting and arguing and there's a lot of, there are a lot of scenes set in the kitchen because she's the mom and she's constantly making food when she's not planning to like, you know, kill one of her kids. You know, it's a very, <laughs> uh, it's pretty uh-huh. hilarious. Um, you know, and then every so often the dudes take their shirt off and they go surfing or they're screw, they screw somebody or they do Coke or whatever. Like, <laughs> like there's a set number of things that they do, but you know, it's like, it's, it's days of our lives, man, you know, but with like, mm an R rated R rating and some tats, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's really a soap opera. And, and what, what draws you in are these characters. And, you know, I love the Sopranos, but you know, I, it's a good, really great soap opera too. I mean, I'm probably <laughs> going to make many people angry, but again, I don't mean that a, it's not a judgment. I'm not using it as a, as a term of judgment. I'm using it just a purely kind of a, categorical term more than you know is a genre term um yeah, yeah and so again that makes it very easy to follow as you're like walking around the house like you know doing stuff because it is just people talking a lot and that's not because melodrama is just talking but it's about relationships you know it's it's mm. super interesting yeah that now reminds me what i always forget which is I guess soap opera built in the the name of the term is is the advertising. <laughs> I guess originally, um, right? But actually, um, I mean, melodrama might be a nice way for us to kind of segue uh, into a mm. couple of movies, because uh, yeah, just in in sort of preparation, we uh, we decided to pick a couple of movies that we'd both watch, and this is I I mean I I guess. You, you, if, if there's any blame about uh, the selection, it, it, fall, it falls on me. I kind of looked at what was available this, this month and, <laughs> um, and sent a kind of ridiculous list, uh, which you politely called eclectic. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think we got a couple ones that you were, you were saying actually might have some common ground between them. Do you have a preference about which one we should dive in with first? Well, I'm always... Uh... Being a, an amateur historian, I guess I'd like to start with the first one, um, which is the French movie Olivia, um, which I um, I had missed Hoberman's column. Uh, Jim Hoberman wrote about it for the New York Times, and I'd missed it. Um, uh, so I was really happy, really, really happy that you suggested it. So that was one of the movies. I'd actually seen most of the movies on your list, and I wanted to see some, I wanted to see some movies I hadn't seen. So this was one of the two that I hadn't um uh, and the movie is also uh, called The Pit of Loneliness. It's a 1951 French film by a woman filmmaker who I also was not familiar with, uh, Jacqueline Audry. Or, or I'm not, my French is terrible, so I'm going to just call her that, Jacqueline Audry. And I don't know. I think we should talk about vis-a-vis, you know, in relationship to the other movie, because yeah, mm. because they were kind of weirdly, I mean, completely randomly picked those yeah. two not knowing anything about Olivia because I don't really like to know about the movies before I watch them. Um, but then the second movie was Picnic, which, and it's just so weird to me that there were actually, uh, this is the 1956, uh, speaking of melodrama, um, hothouse melodrama, um, Joshua Logan <laughs> movie with the 
William Holden and Kim Novick. And I've always wanted to see it because I love both those performers, but also because of the incredibly lurid uh, poster of William Holden looking like, uh, you know, really beefcaked out with his, his shirt ripped half off. And Kim Novick, of course, in the classic pose, kind of like on, you know, positioned lower and like looking up at him. So I, I've always wanted to watch the movie just based on that. But it was just a little interesting that, to pick these two movies together. Yeah. So I think start. let's start with the first, let's start with the French one. Yeah. No, I mean, Olivia is... I had seen it once before and I, I don't know what your reaction was to it, but I, I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, where has this movie been? Like, I, I, I can't believe I haven't seen or, or, or heard mm-hmm. much at all about this movie. And how is this not like a, a bigger part of the usual timeline of like French cinema, you know, where, mm-hmm. where, where mm-hmm. you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it seems like nothing seemed to happen like in, in the fifties or something. And then the new wave happened and then everything <laughs> was good. Right, uh, right, like right, right. Yeah. This is a movie that it's a melodrama that's, I mean, I don't know if overheated is the word. I, I, it's just a kind of a feverish hothouse atmosphere of a, a, a girl's boarding school where it has to be said, like <laughs> sort of a running joke to me, like the, the kind of passing references to, you know, actually having a class at some point um, or, you know, <laughs> and, and no, they don't, the they do <laughs> yeah, no, there is not a lot of them ever being in classroom. I mean, I think, well, we should we should give a little backdrop. Uh, it's um, yeah, it's based on a apparently a semi autobiographical uh, novel by someone named Dorothy Busey, uh, B-U-S-S-Y. Um, and our entry into the story is a young British uh, girl who has just arrived at the school, and it's set in the country. <laughs> And it's all women. And for a very long time, uh, all the characters are women for a very long time. There are very few men. There's about like three or four men. Who, and they show up very late in the movie. And um, first of all, I just want to say that all of the students who are uh, presumably are teenagers all look like they're about 25 years old. So that was a little bit of a, you just have to make that <laughs> leap. Um and the headmistress is played by this fantastic actress who just knocked me out, Edwidge Fouillere, I think, uh, F-E-U-I-L-L-E-R-E. Uh, anyway, she's Miss Julie, and she's the headmistress, and she's divine looking and has these kind of very high, thin eyebrows that always make her look like she's slightly amused by everybody and everything. Um, yes. And she she runs the school... And the girls in the school, the students, are divided between the Juliists, those who are, like, loyal to her, or the Carists, who are loyal to this other woman, um, Mademoiselle Cara. They're both unmarried. They're both called Mademoiselle Julie or Mademoiselle Cara. And this is played by the actress uh, Simone Simon, who we all know, I think Americans, and certainly uh, you film people, you know, know uh, for being in Cat People, the uh, original yes. Cat People. Um, and she's she plays the woman who, you know, is, is the cat. Um, uh, <laughs> and she's wonderful. And it's really unclear what she does except kind of complain and spend all her time in her room looking absolutely amazing. Um, but she's constantly talking about being sick and unwell, but it seems mainly that... <laughs> She's she's jealous 
of Miss Julie's relationship with anybody else. And it's very, after what, like initially, it doesn't seem like there is a, uh, you're not sure where, what the story is. Like, what exactly is this about? And it, it just has this kind of atmosphere and these characters. But eventually it's really kind of divides about how the school is divided between these two factions and what happens. Um, and it's, it's overheated only in the sense that it's, you know, adolescent girls and speaking as a former adolescent girl, everything is very dramatic, you know, so everything is very <laughs> heightened. And yet it's not, you know, it's, it's not this, it's not like everyone's sitting around like unloosening their bodices, you know what I mean? It's very, they're running around and giggling and joking and, but very clearly it's, you know, the way that it, there's a kind of ardor, you know, and they seem very intense about their relationships. And I, th I think it's just the way that there's all these kind of um, insinuations. And then there's this amazing scene uh, at a party where most of the girls are have either dressed like in women's costumes or in men's costumes and are paired off dancing. Mm -hmm. And this one student walks in wearing a very beautiful dress and Miss Julie comes over to tell her how lovely she is and suddenly plants a very big and sensuous kiss on this student's bare neck. And it's really shocking, you know, because it's been fairly restrained. And then she just kind of says, oh, oh, oh you know, it kind of goes off and you're like, okay. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I would say if there's a kind of, if the, the story is kind of organized really about us following the British girl and how she's navigating this world. And she's actually like the least interesting character. Um, her name is supposed to be Olivia, um, but she's not a particular, I didn't find her particularly interesting, but it was yeah. just, I really enjoyed it just as a story. I enjoyed the, you know, I enjoyed it on all these other kind of levels, but I just also, I, I kept thinking about Machen in Uniform, which is a very famous German film, uh, also set in a school, in a all girls boarding school and about repression and desire. And I just kept thinking about that in relationship to this, but also just thinking a lot about um, these movies that are set in kind of very gendered spaces, you know, like mm. whether it's an, um, a convent or an all girls school or, you know, or a monastery, but you have this kind of very rigid where it's all women all, or all men and like what happens and how, there's always some sort of thing that disturbs it. So like, you know, like black narcissists, right. You know, that's in the, mm. the disturbance of that happens there, that there's something, something is going to come and disturb this all female group, you know, and invariably it's, it's often a man in this case. It's not though, you know, it's not like, or like the beguiled, you know, both the Eastwood version and this, uh, and the Sofia Coppola, I should say Don Siegel version or the Sofia Coppola one. Again, where it's the entrance of a man into an all women situation is a very destructive presence. And it's like, like you, and you get the sense in all these stories that there's a, there's something wrong here because it's like a little house of cards that is so fragile that oh, a man has arrived. You know, it's like, woo, ladies, just all in a panic. I don't know why I'm doing a terrible Southern accent. I apologize. But so this movie is a little different because there's no, it's not the entrance of a man that, that kind of is the kind of disruption create that starts creating everything. 
you know, the atmosphere in the school is already disrupted by these two factions that, that exist when the English girl comes to the school. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's totally true. It's just a new arrival. Like it's a, it's a chemistry set. Like one new ingredient is added that somehow seems to mm-hmm. set things off and set off all these little chain reactions of resentments or jealousies and mm-hmm. kind of these different simmering discontent. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of function in the school and that, I, you know, I guess there's students and they're, they're learning, but there's a lot of dysfunction that, especially with the Kara character who mm-hmm. is, I mean, just something was going to happen there. But she's right. Right. But, but only, but not because what was interesting is that there's, there's no sense that the relationships among these women, the intensity, the kind of erotics of their, of their relationships and again, this is a non-explicit movie. So, you know, there's some kissing and, but there's a lot of very intense looking, you know, this is a movie about gazes in a certain extent, um, mm-hmm. is that the women's relationship does not, their relationships don't feel um, pathological, you know, they're not, and right. which is somewhat different from like Beguiled, where you feel like it's like that women being all all together and all alone with other women has somehow made them kind of all nuts. And so when a man comes in, well, of course, everything just goes crazy, you know, because Clint Eastwood's in the house, you know what I mean? And whereas this movie, it, it, it just doesn't feel like being with women and only women exclusively is going to make you, you know, is itself is a problem. And I thought that that was really interesting, you know, and yeah. it's, and the kind of passionate feelings that the that the girls and the women have, again, don't feel pathologized in a way. So that felt really interesting and really kind of incredibly refreshing. Yeah. What really struck me was how the, that kind of close bond between the between the girls could create these just scenes of joy regularly. One, I mean, one thing that I love that kept mm-hmm. happening is you know, people coming together and, and just sort of running somewhere. There's one scene where they go to, I guess, chop down the, the Christmas tree for the house. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's, there's, there's just the woodcutter and then, I don't know, 10 to 15 of the students. And they sort of all start singing together as, as the tree is, is brought down and they're bringing it back. And, and that's something that just keeps happening, this kind of beautiful, natural union and, and just camaraderie that kind of happens. Yeah. It feels more genuine than than it usually feels. It, whenever that happens in like many movies, it, it always feels very dubbed over in a way. <laughs> like I'm hearing the, the kind of shouts or screams kind of ladled on, but here it really felt like it was, it was coming out of the people coming together somehow. I'll just make a note that that's something that kind of happens in an interesting way with a community and picnic as well, but we, we yeah. can come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's very much about the kind of, there's real pleasure at the school again. It, mm. And there's another scene that's much shorter where like two of the girls run off the British girl, like they're just going off to the woods because it's a, this is a rural, you know, it's, it's isolated. Um, and they are out with their the big St. Bernard, which is really hilarious. Uh, cast members is great big St. <laughs> Bernard, which I really loved. Um, yeah. but again, it's not, you're not feeling like the only character who is coded as neurotic is is Kara, you know, the, the, the Simone Simone character who, um, Simone, Simone, uh, who, and she, you know, a, a lot of her neuroses feels very kind of performative, right? It just feels very much like she is, you know, 
kind of like a stubborn child who wants more attention and is jealous of anybody else. I mean, you know, and, and is kind of stamping her, her pretty little foot. But again, she does not feel, I just didn't feel that these relationships were, you know, seen as being unhealthy, you know, that there was mm-hmm. something fundamentally wrong with them. And maybe that's the very French part of this. I don't know. You know, like I just, I really, you know, I really, really liked that a lot. And things happen, you know, uh, but again, it's not because there's any sort of, it's, it doesn't feel like it's because necessarily this, there's this, you know, percolating evil desire that is somehow going to infect the women. You know, it's not like the children's hour or something, you know, um, right. which yeah. I may be, be a little unfair or two, but you know, there's this again, not that, and that, and that just felt that was great, you know? So you know, and also the movie, the movie looks great. And I, I really want to see more of this director's work. It's exciting to have uh, a new director and also a new woman director that whose work I just don't know, you know? Yeah. I mean, me, me too. When I was doing some research already, there are two movies that I have on my list that she directed a version of Gigi. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. The Hollywood Gigi I saw. And then you, did you also see that uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Week, week low? <laughs> She directed the, oh, the, no. the a version of No Exit, apparently, which I can only imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, really interesting sounding, um, and it's it's you know, it certainly seems like she's ripe for some sort of retrospective, you know. Yeah, I mean, one other thing that about Olivia that was fascinating to me is how, I mean, I, I think you 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 were basically saying this that I mean, you can watch the drama of the school. And that would basically be the story of the movie. But if you also dig into what's going on, you know, in the exchanges of gazes and just individual lines that are loaded without actually being presented as, as particularly loaded or just mm-hmm. fraught, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was trying to kind of decode what the relationship substance of the conflicts were. And I don't, mm-hmm. because especially since that there's one character who seems to affect so much of the plot but is treated as a kind of recessive almost servant-like uh, character I, I i guess she works at the school but frau reasoner oh yes um yes there's several other teachers one of whom is a italian teacher and the uh well she's she's an italian woman who's a teacher there and there's a german and i mean it's just i guess it's just as <laughs> the same kind of cultural cliches the french are, are very good at just reproducing those as well so you know the German teacher is very strict and the Italian is very passionate. You, they couldn't be more like, you know, national cliches if you, you know, drew, drew them in little costumes. You know, I mean, it was just very, very funny there. So, yes, there is something. And uh, Frau Risner uh, is devoted to Kara and there's there's something going on there. Like, but you don't know. Um yeah. But it's hard to know. She's just one of those strict women of cinema, you know, <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> yeah. If that's yeah. a whole, like, if I were a programmer, I would like have programs like strict women of cinema. It would just run the gamut. So, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So the movie, there's a certain amount of built in ambiguity, you know, it actually kind of makes it really interesting because I think it's constantly if there is uh, a kind of suspense or drama, the kind of narrative tension is really coming out of like, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, what is this woman to this woman? What is this girl? Mm-hmm. Like what's happening? You know, there's, and again, it's a kind of not a very, 
it's certainly not driven by, it's not a narratively driven movie, which I also really enjoyed, um, you know, that it's a lot of it is just, you know, moments in the everyday lives of these, of these women and kind of certain moments that kind of are a little bit more intense, you know. I just wish that I wish the lead had been better. I was very I just thought she just didn't have what it took. <laughs> it almost yeah, she's a I I almost thought that she was supposed to be like a little a little less interesting and and almost like a little trying too hard to get a profile in in this little community and mm-hmm. and that kind of plays out and somehow she's not as adept at really reading how things work but yeah it's it's true i mean it looks like she wasn't in a lot of uh, movies although her last no. name is actually olivia <laughs> just so yes funny. i know i know that was very funny it's just i think that yeah. the two the two principles are just so the two leads are just so oh, yeah. strong you know yeah. and you just you, you kind of want to watch a movie about them and their relationship uh before the british girl came and kind of mm. you know set everyone off um but i was really happy to to watch and i'm really glad that you suggested it um yeah and it um, did make an interesting counter to picnic <laughs> it did yeah um and i mean picnic this is uh based on a play that was written i don't know how do we going to pronounce his name william inge i don't know i n g e so we'll just mention him once and move on right <laughs> but it was yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, why? But it was directed by Joshua Logan. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting because uh, in this case, a man arrives in town and disturbs the peace <laughs> in a way, right? I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. like you had to just give it a. And yeah. William Holden plays a kind of a little bit of down and out guy who you foresee uh, riding the rails and he gets off a, a train where he's been uh, obviously just kind of, that's how he's been traveling. And he's got, he doesn't even have a bag, you know, he's got nothing but his clothes on his back. And mm-hmm. he's gone to the small town to hook up with his old buddy, uh, uh, which is very strange. Um, Alan, who's played by Cliff Robertson, because Cliff Robertson, who I like very, very much, always struck me as kind of like William Holden 2.0, but not as good as William Holden, you know, like he always felt like a, (laughs) in my mind, he was always kind of like William Holden, but not as good as William Holden or as interesting. Um, So it was interesting to watch the two of them on screen, you know, they have a, and William Holden arrives and it's, uh, he, he ends up being a kind of disruptive force for kind of small group of women who live nearby who are part of the small town and there's a mother with her two daughters one daughter is played by kim novak who's wearing has a whose hair is uh, red in this movie not her usual platinum blonde and the other daughter is millions played by susan strasberg who's of course the daughter of lee strasberg and the mom was really good i liked her a lot she was um, an actress i don't really know very well oh. and so he arrives and uh and everyone, including a neighbor, who's mar- amazingly, and I love, it's my favorite character in the entire movie. I love her. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> oh my God, it's the, this uh, school teacher. I mean, speaking of school teachers, right? Of teachers, uh, played <laughs> by the wonderful Rosalind Russell, who is just fantastic in this movie. And, um, 
Yeah. Rosin Russell basically almost faints and takes off her clothes when she sees William Holden. Like, it's basically that's <laughs> the... And of course, Kim Novak's character is actually dating Cliff Robertson's character, and so they're romantic. But once William Holden enters, there's just... Cliff Robertson doesn't have, just doesn't stand a chance. Um, and, nope. and it's about, you know, all these, it's about how the, this figure is this really disruptive force. Um, finally, a, a liberating force. And you get the sense of like, you know, he's going to, she's shaking things up um, and making people, you know, feel something and do things, you know, and really, and that's really interesting because there's a, you know, the stranger who comes to town and dis- and is a disruptive force is interesting, but then you wed it to this other kind of like, you know, repressed women needing a man to open them up sexually genre, you know, which is, so this is like this really interesting <laughs> combination right. of all these different, you know, uh, forces. But these movies were, you know, again, going back to The Beguiled, it's this, you know, a young virile man comes in and disrupts the equilibrium. Um, and it's just... It's just so interesting because the Wiles and Russell character, you know, so for most of the movie, it's just a lot of conversations. It's often is the case and things are happening and you start to see the relationships um, between two characters and then among the whole group. And uh, Rosalind Russell's character is dating uh, a man and wants to marry him, but he's not interested. Uh, It's a kind of great... um, character actor named Arthur O'Connell who if you see his face you're like oh yeah I've seen that guy in zillions of things yeah he's also um, great and he's great and also he kind of functions uh structurally as a kind of counterpoint to the virility of William Holden you know like he's very plodding he's very you know he looks like he looks you know he's got glasses and his belly kind of sticks out and here comes the very very built William Holden who's yeah. has his shirt off a lot. So I was just thinking a lot about like male sexuality post-World War World War II, you know, and like the men who took their shirts off or appeared in like, you know, tight white t-shirts, you know, like the whole method crew, you know, yeah. <laughs> whether right. it's Brando or, or, J- or James Dean. Um, and of course this is this, you know, the fifties are such a absolutely delectable time for melodrama. I mean, this is the great, melodramatic you know period uh in a lot of ways um and i think yeah. it's well i like that i like how i mean i think it's very well done but it just was a I, I was more interested almost culturally than as an aesthetic object you know like it was just i had a lot of hooting i mean i was hooting a lot i'm sorry to say i mean i mean when there's a character at one point after william holden arrives and i think it might be the Rosen russell character who says something like, there was a man in the house and it felt good. And you're like, baby, light me a post-coital cigarette. Like, you know, you're like, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's so funny. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, you know? Um, yeah. But the yeah. idea of like all these repressed women who are just being sh- shook up by Bill Holden's naked and you know, very smooth chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny connecting it to, you know, Rosalind Russell's the, the older guy who's interested in, in her because yeah, he's, he's interesting because I mean, in a way he's also, 
kind of a bit of an odd man out in terms of what seems to be like the way things unfold in, in the town and in society because he's unmarried and yeah, he has this great, yeah. he, so he, you know, in, in a way, in his own way, he's, I won't say a threat because he's anything, feel, feels like anything but a oh threat. Oh my God, no, no. But he is an alternative and he has this great line of, if she moves in with me, there's enough room for me and my TV. And that's, <laughs> that's like that. and that's that's all the room right, there is. Right. Um, I mean, William Holden's his sort of sensual presence. It's interesting because in this movie, I really felt in other movies he he kind of comes off as a virile presence without too much effort. But here, it's it's almost as if he's kind of directed to play younger than he is. I mean, I guess at yes, the time he's, I agree. He's, yeah, he's like thirty-seven, and he's maybe playing someone mid-20s I wasn't quite sure there's a way he's always kind of bounding around or there's a kind mm-hmm. of a g golly g kind of way maybe that's also a bit the character where he's he's kind of trying to to fit in so you know the character's kind of going along with the mood of the town which is to kind of go along with the mood and not fall into the probably pretty deep gloom that that he's in from just knocking about for however many years and and just trying to tell stories to kind of paper over that a little bit right it's interesting yeah no his um the character is weird and i couldn't decide if it was that it was badly written or if holden was miscast or maybe both i don't know like he, he doesn't ever fit into the character or the character doesn't quite fit like everyone else and but i don't believe that that's intentional i mean it's you know i i feel like yeah i don't think that this was done like we're going to cast you 37 year old william holden in this part <laughs> of a kind of neurotically at wit's end man and again i think it's really important it's you know it's it's uh the idea of this kind of these movies of distressed or anguished masculinity you know i think of that in his character his exuberance is a very kind of often comes off as a kind of false bravado you know Mm -hmm. um and he is bounding around physically in a way that you're like dude are you on bennies or something like what is going on he just seems (laughs) like he's so hyped up and uh but it's like he's trying too hard he's trying to you know he has nothing except his own kind of uh kind of exuberance but it's this kind of strange unmotivated exuberance you know like where is it coming from uh the character is remains somewhat of a kind of cipher i don't even remember like what he was doing you just get the sense that he's been kind of bumming around and on the rail you know he's been just uh jumping onto from train car to train car uh and again he arrives with nothing really right i mean he's got the one his most his biggest possession are the boots that his father left him. You know, there's actually even a scene mm. where the, the boots are mentioned. And so it's a very curious, and he does, he does seem much older than Cliff Robertson, you know, who does, who hasn't actually, who still has this kind of young man's body and hasn't quite filled out. Um, even though they're not, they're only like four or five years apart. It's just one, uh, actually, I think they're a little bit more than that. Um, but, you know, one just seems like he may have just graduated from college where the other one seems like he's like had a whole lifetime before arriving at this. Um, but yeah. again, it's, we don't really know much about it. It's it's just very strange. Um, so it's, you know, just thinking a lot about all these kind of uh, movies of male crises post-World War II and into the 50s. Um, I don't know. It's just thinking like the difference about how it's played, how like, 
Yeah, I was thinking about Postman Always Rings Twice because, you know, he, that character in that movie, um, and of course in the book, is, they threw me off the hate truck, hate truck, I believe is the beginning of the line of that novel, um, oh, wow. something to that effect. You know, He Arrives, it's a really fantastic novel that I highly recommend anyone reading. It's very short too. He also arrives with nothing, but there's a real despair to his character. And there's not this kind of, you know, he's cynical uh, and he's kind of dangerous, you know, whereas this character, I don't know. I'm not really even sure what this character is supposed to represent, except he's restless and he's come to liberate poor Kim Novak, who who deserves better than a sad life with Cliff Robinson in a small town, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because, I mean, it's it's not like Holden is an actor who isn't really good at, at conveying just a kind of state of upset and disappointment. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, at the time, I, I started to think of like what other actors, it's a kind of character that Robert Mitchum might have played in like a different kind of movie, a, a, mm-hmm. a, a movie mm-hmm. maybe pointedly kind of not scope, kind of an earlier generation of drifting loner and I feel like Mitchum was often able to kind of, I don't know, inoculate characters against uh, any skepticism about the character because he always brought his own little twinkle to it. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, I think in part, one of the problems is like, is you can feel, you know, I, I have no problem with plays that are translated to the screen at all. You know, it's like, it's just a matter of like, is it is it done well or not? I mean, that's, that's all that really matters, right? So one of the problems I think with, the movie though and i and i enjoyed it i don't think it's particularly great but i enjoyed it um uh and i certainly thought it was an interesting artifact but is that there's too much talking too much explaining too much mm-hmm. you know um you, you do want to kind of pare that down that, that there'd be a little less is more because actually holden is capable of great interiority and the holden is one of those characters that you feel like you're getting a sense of of a of an interior life, you know, I mean, one of those uh, actors who can actually do that and Mm -hmm. just think about, you know, just, he's very, he's got a, and and as we know from movies like Sunset Boulevard, he certainly has got an entire range of, of looks and, you know, he can, he can, he can certainly uh, telegraph a great, express a great deal without a lot of words. Um, And here there's a lot of words. Um, Yeah. I know that the script was, we heavily rewritten, including having a, a happier ending um, than a, apparently with the what the play had. Um, hmm. But I think that's in keeping with the time. Yeah, I'm not sure that the Kim Novak character ends up with William Holden. Ah. I think she may stay in the original. I'm sorry that I didn't double check that. Um, but the movie has to round everything off, and there has to be a certain amount of like closure and happiness. But And it's really interesting because it's not a severe intentional or otherwise critique of like small town life, you know, as being this repressive space. Like you get the sense that people are actually pretty happy, you know, there, it doesn't feel like there's all sorts of, you know, and the main thing that's wrong with the school teacher uh, is that she wants to settle down. And Russell's performance is so, Russell Russell's performance is so interesting because there's a certain level of uh, anxiety to the per- performance and, a, and certainly a, a kind of a depth of emotion, but I didn't feel like she was a pathetic um, character, you know, um, which mm-hmm. I really, I attribute to some way to, to actually her performance, you know, 
like the way that she delivers lines, there's a certain, it just doesn't devolve into like, she's a poor, pathetic woman who's kind of, you know, making a pass at William Holden and or desperate for, even when she seems at her most desperate, the character, there is a great dignity to her. I didn't feel like um, it was pathetic and therefore also very sexist. You know, I didn't feel like there was like, oh my God, this poor woman, she's been a virgin for so long. She really, really needs to get married so she can have sex and live and, you know, and, and have the kind of bourgeois, heteronormative, blah, 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 life, you know, that is supposed to be hers. I didn't feel that, you know, like, I feel like there's something really, uh, a spark of great life in the character that keeps her from being one of those neurotic, desperate women of the 1950s that you see. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's just a, she's so committed to it and there's, there's obviously this kind of steely core to her and there's a there's just a strength in the way she pours herself out <laughs> you know it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like I think maybe it's the writing is pushing her in that direction a little bit but it's it's mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. for Russell she just can't she's not gonna, she's not gonna do that and I love how she's she's also just slips in all these little things even when she's not you know in in the, in the spotlight there's this one great moment where whole they're at the picnic uh the the, the picnic of the title that um mm-hmm. Because there is a picnic. <laughs> truth, truth in advertising. There is a picnic. Yes. <laughs> and Holden is telling, you know, maybe some semi-toll tale about some something he did or and then something he wants to do. And he's framed in the shop, but they show her and she's staring at his crotch. And they this happens in two yeah, shots. I, 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 yeah, no, it's kind of amazing. She has given him the up and down. She's like, oh, yeah, you know, and... Wilson Russell is just a, she's a really juicy performer and there's she's just, great. she's really, and that's part of the life of the character. And again, it's like, I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't know if that's the original, in the original play, which I've never seen and have, you know, next to no interest in seeing, but, um, but she's very, she's a life force. And that yeah. was just really great because there, again, there was not this sense of like, there's sometimes these characters in the movie where it's like, the old, the so-called old maid, right? Um, and how the spinster and how those characters kind of function um, and what they represent uh, as the kind of like the disappointment of a woman's life, you know, because of course she needs to be married to have a fulfilled life and, um, and of course some children, blah, blah, blah. And there's none of that, you know? Um, she does want to get married, make no mistake, but it's, but and she's clearly interested in sex as those shots of her, her checking out Liam Holden. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, we could just spend, I mean, you could do a whole thing on about like American male beefcake because it's so interesting how Holden as the object of desire in the movie, like he is the most prominent figure of desire, right? He is, mm-hmm. he comes in and everyone is looking at him you know, and, and again, his shirt's off. And it was also interesting because I kept thinking about Kim Novak, because of course, when you watch Kim Novak, or I don't know, for me, like I'm, I'm almost every time I see her, I'm always seeing her through her performance in Vertigo. Like that Mm. performance is so important, that double performance and that movie that it's like almost a, a screen that is overlaid, you know, so even if I'm watching like Bell Book and Candle or something else, it's like, I'm always watching it through Vertigo in a weird way. And um, I can't, I can't escape Vertigo <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And so, yeah. so thinking about how she looks in that, how she's presented in that as her two different characters as Madeline and Judy, and then thinking she's not highly sexualized in this movie, you know, um, she's not, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but it's kind of missing the fetishism. And so that was super interesting too, because yeah. she's often fetishized, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and as you were saying, you know, in terms of the this, this sexual focus of the movie, it's really on, on Holden more than Novak, even mm-hmm. though Novak is, I mean, it, it just in terms of the plot is the center of this love triangle, I guess, that that develops. And But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, another interesting thing about uh, Holden's like entrance, you know, you were talking about the kind of genre or not the, just the kind of theme of uh, someone coming to town and disturbing the peace is that he's not he's not coming from a background of any real heroism either and yeah in the post-war context he's coming from a background of like no background and that's what's part of what makes people yeah. uncomfortable you know i i don't i i mean and that's kind of the problem for kim novak's character in the movie is considered not suitable uh for cliff roberts's kind of young scion he's a scion of a grain elevator empire <laughs> yes yes that's quite a that's quite a yeah <laughs> another Chekhov thing of like a grain elevator being introduced in the first act you know but uh, anyway <laughs> <laughs> you know it's gonna go you know that there's gonna be a terrible scene in the grain elevator at some point later yeah no I think that that is really interesting and I think in terms of thinking about you know the um post-war the sense of like you know because of the GI bill and you have the creation of a, the middle class and so much of, you know, home and women are supposed to go back to the home and, and, and William Holden's character is a kind of, uh, you know, almost like historically out of place in some sort of way, the kind of, you know, the timeless drifter who's coming into a very specific moment um, and doesn't really fit into that, you know, but that presents here, at least in the movies is he's a figure of freedom, you know, and Mm. I think it's, because even though he offers all he can offer Kim Novak's character, unlike Cliff Robertson, who is the son of a wealthy man, who in the, the the father of Cliff Robertson, you actually see him like making an unhappy face about the fact that his son is dating Kim Novak. The Kim Novak is going to like be somehow released from from the almost you know not just the, the her life with Cliff Robertson, <laughs> you know. But in terms of this kind of uncomfortable future where she will always be, you know, the frowned upon uh, daughter-in-law. So maybe actually I'm wrong. Maybe there is a little bit of sense of like the constriction of small town, but it doesn't really feel like it's not one of those places, you know, it's not like it's so oppressive that she has to leave. It's more like he just offers her, he offers her love. I mean, because that's the only thing he has to give her, right? Because he has no maternal possessions that we know of yeah. and that's enough for her to, to, to want to be with him. Um, yeah. I mean, I also yeah. just think she looks at William Holden. She looks at Cliff Robertson and it's like, I'm sorry, what would you, you know, what, who would you <laughs> want to leave with? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it was very <Yeah>. clear <laughs> shirt or no shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true, but the small town is not, it's not presented as this kind of, you know, boring cookie cutter place, partly because there's, it's clear there's such a, uh, such a feeling of welcoming there. And, and I think that's something that actually mm-hmm. maybe, maybe excites uh, Joshua Logan or I, I don't know more, more than anything else is the, is the pageantry of the small town and, and the feeling of the community, because mm-hmm. it feels like 
Oh, also just like shout out to James Wong Howe. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cinematographer, because a lot of wonderful energy goes into the pageantry of the central picnic and they mm-hmm. just have such fun with these montages of, of people goofing around and there's this one shot of everyone eating watermelons mm-hmm. and the whole screen is just this riot mm-hmm. of like pink and red. Watermelon. I know it's such a weird shot in the middle of all that. No, it's a beautifully done scene, you know, and there's yeah. an extremely beautiful pastoral scene where, um, and actually it's like a, a very, it's reproduced a lot if you just, if you just look it up of our main cast gathered together, almost in a kind of 19th century pastoral landscape, you know, uh, mm. it's like, it's almost kind of Renoir-esque, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, Kim Novick on a, on a, swing and then everyone else kind of gathered and it's beautiful and it's a beautiful use of the frame you know it's just it has such a compositional uh elegance um and you know it's it feels very homey and almost like everyone's being held together in this way and again there's no sense of irony here there's no sense of um, menace or danger um it just it feels very much like oh this is a good place but maybe it's just not the place for her, you know, mm. and maybe she needs to move on and follow him. But again, there's not that. It's more like he just offers her love, you know, and that's what's been missing. She had, you know, safety and family and a possible future, but there's this alternative. Um, yeah. It's not exactly bohemian, but it's, you know, but that that picnic scene is really the whole. It's a series of scenes out into it is just really beautifully done. Um, yeah, and it, it goes from daytime to nighttime until they're finally doing the fa- the very famous dance that they do. Get some uh, lanterns at night. It's very lovely. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, and 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 the movie that I mean has all that bustling uh, energy of of the picnic to that point just you know suddenly you're just suspended in time with the two of them as the as they're uh yeah they're dancing and it's it's a really it's a wonderful just in terms of the dynamics of the movie it's just a wonderful um passage it really is because the um so we've been in the daytime uh and then it's suddenly it's night and they're dancing on a they start dancing together there's a few other characters the Russell Russell characters there's the other sister is there but they're against a very, very deeply, uh, kind of deep, uh, it's almost black. You can see some people in boats in the, in the background, but there is a sense of suspension of just like mm. that they become, uh, they kind of fall out of the entire context, you know, and out of the picnic and suddenly they're just two people dancing. I kind of think I was just thinking about it just now, like, I think it's a little bit kind of what he was trying to do in La La Land, you know, um, Damien Chazelle with that dance, where it's like two oh, people mm-hmm. create their whole world, you know, and the the world falls away and two people are enough to be, you know, they become, the, you know, the moon and the sun for each other. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, and, and all of the, it's kind of funny for a movie based on a play and a movie where there's a lot of talking that this is almost a wordless, you know, they're just dancing. And it's, I think, the most successful in some ways, most beautiful scenes in the movie. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. When they, <laughs> when they finally stop talking, it's, it, uh, it's, <laughs> surprise, it's quite moving just to see two bodies in motion it close is. to each other. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, William Holden was very unhappy about dancing, but I think he dances quite nicely in this movie. You know, yeah. I mean, it just, it works. Yeah. No, I think um, so. and, and they're yeah. both so lovely, so it's fun. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm sure there's there's more that we could say about Picnic, but uh, maybe we can talk a bit more about just uh, one other thing that I thought might be interesting to talk about. Uh, just for listeners again, that was uh, Picnic, uh, which is my Criterion channel. Oh yeah, you just go to just go to just watch and look it up. Um, yes, that's the best the best place to find out where something is if it's available to, to stream or rent or whatever. Yeah, it is pretty widely available. Yeah, and 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 likewise, Olivia, I've noticed it seems to bounce around a bit, uh, so, but you can find out where to watch it. And there, it's even on Vimeo. There's a kind of interesting person who seems to be curating movies that don't have a home on there. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why I found it. I was originally going to watch it on a on a service, and but when it, it came up on a search, and then, and then I found myself watching a really strange Brazilian movie that I'm gonna, I had to stop because I, oh. I, <laughs> <laughs> I had to save it for later. You can watch it on. Uh, you can stream it on Movie. By the way, that's uh, you need a subscription, but you can you can watch Olivia that way among other other places yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's something that I've been wanting to talk about, and I hadn't didn't really have a chance because it sort of came and went, and so it's kind of interesting just in in terms of the discussion about television, um, and 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 here we're sort of you know you get to press play and and, and call up one of these movies. But one thing that I, I watched and so is kind of part of my visual experience is uh, was an Instagram live by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I should just say AOC. This is probably like already receded into the distant past as far as people are concerned in terms of all the things that are broadcast live at any given time. But it was when she discussed the events of January 6th the, I don't know, assault, invasion, terrorist attack on uh, Congress Mm -hmm. and, you know, her surviving it, basically. And it was just Mm -hmm. her her personal narrative, you know, first person experience of the day, basically going through it just about moment to moment, minute, minute to minute. I mean, I don't know. I, I also just thought I'd bring it up because... I mean, I know you've you've sort of written and talked a bit about her skill and intelligence and communicating with with people, <laughs> uh, and and Insta is is one way she does that. And I don't know, did you did you watch some some of that or any of that? Oh yeah, no, I do. I I follow her on Instagram, and I'm my the fact that I'm on Instagram is such a source of great, you know. <sighs> agony for me because it's owned by Facebook and I got off Facebook because Facebook is a force of evil in the world. Um, And of course, every time I go on Instagram, I'm reminded that Facebook owns Instagram. And so I think, you know, at one point, probably I will get off of Instagram as well. But I think this last year, it's been helpful, honestly, just in terms of like me just trying to kind of keep it together. And it's been a way that Mm -hmm. I've been able to see I've been able to see some people that I love, you know, that I can't see in person. And uh, it's so it was very hard for me to, to give that up. Uh, uh, so I, I'm still there. I, I got off Twitter about a month ago because uh, it was making me too nuts. I mean, I'm going to go back at some point, um, maybe when I return from my book leave. But uh, I just uh, the discourse, as we say, was driving me crazy. <laughs> so, um, so it, it's. You know, I just, I couldn't bear it. And it, 
I know. I, I, I was just through the, the, the three forbidden words are discourse, uh, narrative, uh, so they still use it because I, you know, for obvious reason, and the conversation, <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, yeah. it's all horrible. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, I, it's just, uh, it's really film, the, the film world on Twitter. I, I like a lot of individual people, but as a collective, I find it very difficult. So I, I just, I needed to take a little bit of a, a petite pause. Um, so Instagram, I have been following AOC for a while on it. I thought it was really interesting and uh, how very good she was at doing these things. Um, you know, and I've, I remember I watched her once put together some IKEA furniture and I was just fascinated by that. I've watched her mm -hmm. cook, you know, um, and how she's able to, uh, you know, she's a kind of blazingly intelligent person. I mean, she just knocks me out and I, you know, I loved mm. her, that the documentary that was in part about her knocked down the house. Um, yeah. You know, so she, I, you know, I really admire her. Uh, I am also, I'm not very good. I mean, she just, I'm so completely in awe of anyone who can put together so many words so intelligently so quick. Like I just, mm -hmm. it is not my talent as listening to this podcast. I uh, should underscore, but um, <laughs> so I really like, I think she's, I just think she's really interesting and I learn things, you know, so I like following her. And I just, she had just started talking about January 6th and when I just happened to be mainly because I was spending way too much time on, because it was a very fraught time for all of us. I mean, it's obviously, it, it was yeah. a completely traumatic and I spent a, a, a kind of obscene amount of time on social media uh, in, in January. Um, I think understandably so, but um, so <laughs> I was, I happened to be as usual, you know, there she was. And I thought it was absolutely stunning. I mean, in a way she's, you know, she's so completely, um, the, the word genuine is always obviously a problem because there's a lot of, you know, what does it mean? What is, what does it mean to be authentic? Obviously there's, we all have these, like, who is she really? You know, I, I don't know her, um, but I like whatever the AOC that she presents uh, on social media, whether she's like kicking someone's ass on Twitter uh, <laughs> or uh, being very intimate. And I this this level of intimacy for, you know, to have a politician, you know, cook some food in the kitchen and then talk about policy, taking questions or explaining things or... Yeah, I remember when she got um, she got vaccinated. She talked about that. You know, that was just mm. really interesting. This was, you know, she was very reassuring. She's, you know, it was just it was all very nice. But this in her account was very uh, gripping and very emotional because, you know, it was really a kind of uh, she was a witness to a crime, and that's really how I, mm. I very quickly saw it as as someone who was describing a crime in which she had almost, she would have been victimized, you know, in a sense of kind of a larger sense, but how she, how quickly she, you know, how very close she had come to becoming a, you know, a, a victim of a violent crime. And it was just, it was harrowing. And I thought, I thought it was also interesting because it really did feel like legal testimony in a certain, like I felt like she was giving it to mm. us to other Americans, you know, um, her eyewitness testimony, but it's also for history. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't really thought deeply about this, but I do think certainly it is, we are seeing a, a kind of shift. It's an interesting, maybe it's a paradigm shift. I don't know in terms of how politicians use social media is very interesting. There's some 
feel like Ted Cruz who use it very badly and, you know, gets ratioed um, pretty quickly. <laughs> and, and then, you know, she is, you know, is not original thought. She's a genius at it. I mean, she's just, you know, I think she's a genius anyway, but I think she's also happens to be not everyone who's a genius is also a genius at social media. She is both, hmm. but it felt very, uh, watching it was just an interest was interesting. I don't know if you felt like this because I felt, I felt there was a kind of monumentality to it, even though it had this casualness and that was an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I mean, it, I really wrestle with myself whether to use the word because because obviously it, it can have the connotation that there's something put on about it, but the performance of it, just in the sense of inhabiting that space um, and communicating mm-hmm. just in that sense was mm-hmm. just just tremendously moving and, and operating on so many levels. You know, yeah, as, as you said, on the kind of monumental level, but also just this kind of ha- harrowing uh, vulnerability and intimacy to it and you know moving between registers she could be in one moment bearing her soul about her fear um which mm-hmm. is tremendously brave for a politician it's the sort of thing that politicians are told not to do because it is yes. you know it's, it's especially if if you're a woman because of all the stupid electoral stereotypes and things uh, about how people are supposed to behave and she'll do that and then she's explaining the layout of the congress and this is where people actually mm-hmm. do the work. Mm-hmm. And this, mm-hmm. so that was why I was going mm-hmm. from here to here. Uh, this is what the representative or senator helped helped me here. You know, it's and you just get these insights mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. into, you know, relationships, the actual like lived experience of government, of being in government. And then at this absolutely, you know, terrifying historic time uh, day of violence and everything. So it's just, yeah, she's bearing witness to that and testifying. And I just, just something about what she's doing that is, it for me, it just kind of changed how I experienced government or democracy. I just felt like this is a really, because mm-hmm. that's something that's just been, there's something all came together in that moment for me because the thing that was there were so many things to terrifying <laughs> of the past four years, but one really terrifying thing just about the election was the idea that we would go through this election uh, for whatever it was, six months, without people, without politicians really being physically on the trail. I mean, as fake as that seems and sounds, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. taking that out and the fact that not entirely it happened, um, uh, but and and Trump made a point of having rallies as usual, but the fact that that could be decreased to the amount it was and, and sort of things continue as usual with the horse race was intensely disturbing mm-hmm. to me because that felt a kind yeah. of sleight of hand about democracy that was not good. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. that presence. And so coming back to her in- Instagram presence, somehow I felt like there is, there's an urgency, there's a presence here. Again, I'm not in the room with her. I'm not at a speech he's giving, but there is something about the power and the bringing us back to the reality of, of being people <laughs> and of her being a person and being a representative. Yeah. It was really important for me uh, on top of all the other roiling, you know, emotions of, of, of watching it and, and feeling it. Um, especially as it was clear, the immediate imperative for a lot of people in politics was to just bury all of this. And so that's also, it was, yes. it was great. It was great to see that. I think uh, one of the things that's really interesting, but I also think is very, very um, important is 
I mean, I think that there's so many uh, issues here uh, and it's very tangled up and I've never talked about this. So I'm going to kind of just lurch into this, not knowing if I'm making any sense, but um, as I think that so much of the kind of uh, conservative rhetoric, which sometimes meets progressive is like, it's how we think of government, you know, and how that the government is something that happens out there that has no relationship to you as a person. So like we've heard a lot, um, certainly since the vaccine that, you know, I don't trust the government. I've had people actually say that to me and I, you know, I've said, well, maybe trust scientists and said, you know, trust the science about the vaccine, not the government. And also, right. you know, there are different kinds of governments and that the default isn't necessarily to trust the government, but neither should it necessarily be that don't ever trust the government. Like, you know, like it's really interesting. Certainly yeah. it's been, and I have to tread very carefully here because I work for the New York times and what I can say and cannot say is I would like to hold on to my job. So just, I'm going to kind of, move away from making sort of political comments. But what I can say is that we do know that, for instance, with, with Trump, that it was very much somehow he was this anti-establishment figure, uh, you know, and it's like, you know, the government is a bad thing. I mean, it's this back to the Ronald Reagan old, you know, the, mm-hmm. the eight scariest words in the English language is I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that may be 10 words. I can't remember what the exact quote is. Um, <laughs> right. But that's just, you know, and that's a kind of, uh, it's almost, uh, it is a key sentence in the history of neoliberalism, you know? And so the government is a bad thing. Therefore we need to dismantle the government and people don't really think about the government doing things like paving your roads or providing your children with education. I mean, you know, and it's way that the government gets positioned. And one of the things that's interesting about AOC is, um, as a progressive, she is saying, um, and she's coming from a larger context of people who are who are progressives who are trying to actually work within the establishment versus working outside of it because she could be have been a community organizer right and, and not going into but saying let's mm. see can we affect change in the inside but part of her affecting change I think is the kind of humanizing side of it and um, you know when we see politicians they're always dressed up they're wearing suits and pantsuits and whatever um you know maybe we'll see nancy pelosi's ice cream or whatever but there is a kind of deeply humanizing thing about aoc that i think is completely important to her her message about changing the government that the government doesn't belong to them it can also belong to us and we can do that and i think this is just part of a larger like who she is what she represents that it's, you know, something that the government is not just about certain white men who hold power, who have, you know, extremely wealthy political corporate donors, you know, uh, the government is also can be someone who worked as a bartender and came in and started affecting change. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Yes. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I see her videos as part of that kind of a lot of what AOC is doing is demystification. You know, she's very, very much about demystifying things and how the process works. And that's, and it's so great because she does explain policy and politics when she talks to us, right? And you can start to understand things. But her description of what happened on the 6th, and then she goes to Katie Porter's office and 
God damn, Katie Porter is like, I'm going to defend you. You know, you get the sense yeah. that Porter was going to defend her to the, you know, to the ends of the earth, you know, like, and that, I mean, I was, I'm sure like you just watching endless video, t- TV, whatever, uh, you know, for the whole time that this was going on, but this felt like on a different order, you know, the intimacy, the kind of the way the AOC is able to very fluidly toggle between the kind of analytic and the, and the intimate is just, you know, nobody does that with, with that kind of success. Yeah. And yeah, she just feels all the more invaluable and precious <laughs> for that because it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, I don't know if there are other politicians that are doing this. I certainly know she's amazing at doing that, finding some way of meeting people where they are. It's almost as if she said, okay, fireside chat, what does that mean? Well, you know, people cook at mm-hmm. home, so this is how I'm going to meet meet with you and we'll, we'll yes. talk. And, yes. And that's brilliant. No, I think that's, and I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the fireside chats because I think that is really, really crucial. I mean, this is LaGuardia, the old mayor of New York City, used to talk to people on the radio. He was reading, I think it started when he, when there was a newspaper strike and I, he started reading the funnies to kids uh, on the radio. I believe that that was the origin uh-huh. of that. And then FDR does that during the depression. And I was, I was just listening to someone talking. I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm, when I'm not folding laundry and watching my laundry folders, I also listen to podcasts, <laughs> but I tend to listen to, uh, to lectures by different historians. And I was listening to a historian recently who was talking about, uh, the fireside chats and um, about how map sales went up in the United States because one of the things that FDR did uh, in his fireside chats and he said he wanted to speak as you know he was talking to friends so it was a friend, you know he was going to be speaking he didn't give that many there aren't that many of them I, I'm not even sure what the number is but they were very profound but map sales actually went because uh, they said the president would like everyone to who's going to listen to to get a map because he's going to be talking about, <laughs> he's going to be mm. talking about the war. And so he, and I was just, re, and I actually, after I heard that, I went and looked up about map sales and they had gone up. Um, but if you read the, this one, uh, one fireside chat, because uh, they were, they were written out, um, uh, FDR actually says, now look at your map. You know, and he is talking to people in this deeply intimate way. And that how people would say there was a story that this historian said, uh, there was a story of guy said, well, I have to go. My friend's going to be on the radio. What do you mean? Oh, FDR. Well, it, the, pe- the people, some people who listen to him had this incredible intimacy as a friend. And I think that in a way we're, we're kind of describing how AOC is able to do that as well. And this is about great communication. Where you know your audience, you know how to you know how to talk to your audience, um, but I just think that is so incredibly poignant that map sales went yeah. up because FDR asked people to go out and buy maps so he could explain what was going on um, in the war <laughs> and the and decisions that were being and like I'm asking you to potentially sacrifice, you know, your sons, your brothers, your husbands, and this is what was going on. I, I, I don't know. I thought it was actually kind of you know uh, quite brilliant and. I think yeah. she's definitely in a continuum about kind of charismatic politicians and about their communication yeah. with uh, their constituents. And I'm not even a New York constituent anymore. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm still tuning in. <laughs> yeah. She seems to be able to speak to a wide, wide audience. And it was just an, an incredible, um, I, don't, I don't even have the word for it. I mean, it's, you know. Well, 
it was so I, it was it's testimony you were watching testimony. someone yeah i mean and mm. it felt it felt very very profound i don't know i just i i felt the enormity of it you know just the and again the the sense of that you i also think like when we when we read history we often it's it's so separated so it was very um from the people who are part of that history you know you read stories about you know you read accounts chronicles of what they went through but here is someone who went through this and she is talking to us not she's not testifying in a um on the floor you know she's not you mm -hmm. know she's not testifying um she's talking to us in a very intimate intimate way including talking about her own her own history as a as a victim and you know, it just felt very, very, very gutsy, and 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 I was very moved by it, like you were. I just, you know, uh, whatever one, how, you know, however you, you fall in the political divide, it was just a, a, an extraordinary moment in what has been an extraordinary year. Yeah. <laughs> That's all yeah. I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, absolutely. That's the other thing. It's like at that point, I, I mean, I didn't even think that I, <laughs> I had the ability to be surprised after you know the past few years but it's it was a good surprise and I, you know it's necessary and, and really great yeah well i'm glad we got to talk about it because also it was <laughs> just something that in a way could have can just it's just also because of the way things are something like that i mean it's not maybe it's archived somewhere i don't know i'll have to look that up next but it just feels like it's it's worth putting on the records somewhere mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. talking about that well, um, I think uh, we can we can probably bring this in for a conclusion. Uh, we've... I was worried that we weren't going to have enough to talk about, and here we are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> many minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here here we are, just just describing a new way of governing that uh, AOC has basically uh, <laughs> basically uh, come up with. But um, yeah. Just before we, we finish, I did want to just ask if there's anything you can say about you're currently on uh, book leave. And so I'm sure people are wondering what, what you might be working on. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a general interest. I don't know how else to say. It's a non-academic history book that I'm probably going to be working on for some time. Uh, I've been working on it for some time and I will continue uh, working for some time on it. Uh, a history of uh, women in American cinema. And um, it's in a way, uh, it's just something I have been working on for the entire time I've been a writer, professional writer. I wrote my first stories, my first pieces on women in movies uh, back in the village when I was working at the Village Voice as a freelancer back in the late 80s. So um, it's just something I've, I'm hoping just to piece together. But I, uh, Writing a book is hard. I'm just going to say, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> but it's very pleasurable and uh, I'm having a good time when I'm not having a terrible time. And, you know, it seemed like a good time. It was a good time to take a book leave given that we're, you know, um, we're in the pandemic still. Uh, um, yeah. And it's very uncertain. It's uncertain what the future of movie going will be. So um, it was kind of nice to be able to kind of move away from that and do something else. So, um, but I'll be back. Uh, my leave is over on July 1st. Um, so I should be back um, then. 
reviewing movies. And uh, I'm going to say I'm very grateful that I, I have missed. I won't have to write about the Oscars this year because I'm I'm uh, not <laughs> I'm not working right now, so I I can just ignore them or not uh, without having to have an opinion about them, which is really <laughs> nice. <laughs> or or just fold laundry during them. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't know if it's quite going to be quite as uh, satisfying to, and I'm not on Twitter, as I said, so to, to rage tweet, uh, you know, that's usually <laughs> been my experience okay. watching this is just, you know. Yeah. So, so that's where I'm at. Well, that's something to look forward to. It's always a good thing. We can wrap it up there. Uh, but Manola, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast <laughs> and for taking all this time to talk. It's been really a wonderful talk i really appreciate it and hope we can do oh. it do it do it again oh absolutely it was really my pleasure it was so much fun to talk to you and um let me know next time you know <laughs> when you want me i'm oh. definitely uh i'm here <laughs> <laughs> all right signing off okay take care bye you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas Rapold. if you like what you heard please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at repold.substack.com. That's repold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.